You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, I, I tried to, to log into our Twitter account for the uh, Vision of Education podcast, but I couldn't. I was hoping And I don't notice. know why. Yeah, that's my fault. What did you do? So I was sitting on our Twitter account late at night trying to come up with some, some clever tweets like I do. And I was looking at our date on there and it said April 14th, 2001. And I was like, why does it have that date? April 14th is I think when we started. I think we figured that out and put it in there. But I was going to change it to our real start date, 2016. The second oh. I did it, Michael, our account got locked down. Because it would look like we're four years old. Yeah, but that also means we would have started the account on our day of birth. Because that's when, very difficult. Yeah. So you'd think like Twitter's like, you know, artificial intelligence algorithm stuff could identify that we're not a four-year-old podcast that's been putting episodes out since we were born. I mean, we are a four-year-old podcast. Yeah, that is true. That is true. Um, we're in, in our uh, fourth year, which, you know, means we're walking and talking and, and figuring out finally what's going on in the world. But um, yeah. I'm sorry about getting that shut down. And I immediately turned in the information to get it back up. So hopefully, everyone, our Twitter account is back up, but you can find both of us and we will be sharing our episodes on Twitter through our personal accounts. That's right. I'm 42 Think Deep. I'm at Dan Kretka. I mean, yeah, I think I think right now we're all spending a lot of time online and that's probably why I was like, huh, I'm going to change the date on this account and messed up. I mean, what what is school and everything been like for you? So obviously, if you're listening to this, we are in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis and uh, many schools have been shut down. So we, in Massachusetts, we are, we, we seem to, where some states seem to jump right into the online learning, ours did not. And part of the idea was that we could not get everyone, doing it all online would be, there's some, there's some equity issues because obviously not everyone has access to the technology, not everyone has access to, to Wi-Fi. And so to all of a sudden put everyone being graded on uh, online in the entire state, our, the governor and the, the ed commissioner uh, really slow walked it. And so now we're, the communities are trying to meet the needs of their students, but obviously we're, this is all, thing is all in flux. Yeah, it's a real challenge. I've seen districts that have tried to, you know, send Chromebooks home and, um, you know, have Wi-Fi hotspots hot drive to neighborhoods, and it just feels like a lot that um, could go wrong in those situations, and a lot of associated problems are probably there, and it's really still not going to be equitable, right? When you have one Chromebook and a Wi-Fi hotspot that I'm sure is not that strong compared to students who are in their home with, you know, three computers and, and strong Wi-Fi, yeah. it's a challenge. Yeah. So I think it, it brings up a lot of equity issues around it, right? Even Chromebooks, right? I think um, Google, I've mentioned, I think I've mentioned before, Google, I think has a lot of problems with the data that it, it uses and the way it tries to capture a market by making things uh, cheap by 
you know, making their money off of our data. But Zoom, too. We're actually doing our first episode on Zoom in the midst of Zoom kind of was like last week was like, you know, had its honeymoon where everybody's like, Zoom, Zoom, this is fun. We can Zoom with people. Um, and Zoom's a video oh. conferencing technology, if you don't know. I did it. Friends, we do uh, Shakespeare readings. And so like, mm-hmm. it's like a dinner party. We did a, a Shakespeare, digital Zoom Shakespeare party. Yeah, I've actually, I, I like watched, we were, me and some of my friends from high school watched like old basketball games from high school and like talked during them. It was actually like really fun. And so it's been, it's been a cool way to, you know, socially stay close by physically distant. I saw somebody point out, we really need physical distance, not social distance. And so, but then all of a sudden the problems with Zoom started coming out. Their privacy wasn't very first honest. Like they didn't really, they don't really have end to end encryption, even though they said that they did and there's been people zoom bombing like interrupting even oh yeah dissert i saw a a black man's dissertation defense was was racistly um zoom bomb with 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 you know epithets racial epithets and things like that and i which i can't imagine the the trauma of that experience and how disappointed it must be after all of that work and so so some of the shortcomings of zoom so we got these techno ethical questions we have to ask about you know technology and its relationship in our lives so speaking of that, this is also a special episode for two reasons. Number one, obviously we have a, a terrific guest that we'll talk about in a minute. Number two, you've invited your entire class here. Yeah, they're like just watching us right now. It's kind of creepy. <laughs> just kidding. I like my class and they like to hang out with us. But yeah, no, they're here because we invited the author of the first book we write in my doctoral class. The class is called Critical Perspectives on Learning Technologies. I got to create this class. And so I could choose any book in the world. And I, I chose this 2019 book that was published by Ruha Benjamin called Race After Technology. And so they're here to join us during us. Fantastic. Well, without further ado, let's get started. Hello. Hey. Hi. Dr. Benjamin, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself. Who is Dr. Benjamin? <laughs> you make it sound so much more intriguing. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Ruha Benjamin, and I'm uh, trained as a sociologist. I'm a professor of African American studies. I'm an author of several books and editor of a of a new volume. I I'm a mother of two teenage boys, a resident of Princeton, New Jersey, and I think most of all, I'm a teacher at heart. Like as, as far as my identity and what I care most about, it's, it's being a good teacher. And I interpret that in its most expansive sense. Yes, my literal students in the classroom, the classes that I teach, I pour a lot of energy and love and passion into designing the kind of relationships and the kind of content that I hope it kind of lives with my students well beyond the classroom. But I also think of my teaching in the way that I write, in my speaking, in the things that I do outside of academia, in my collaboration with communities and organizations. So I think that pedagogical aspect of just living, learning and teaching most uh, sort of captures what I care about and who I am. So your, your website says that you study the social dimensions of science, technology, and medicine. I'm curious how you got there. What made you, so you're, you're in an African-American studies program, yeah. and then have a very kind of almost STEM-type focus, but really yeah. on the social aspects of it. What, how did you get to that point? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you the short origin story. But first I'll say, you know, I think a lot of people have that sort of puzzle 
puzzle reaction about how to study these particular issues in the context of an African-American studies department. And, and a, a, the short way that I, I kind of make that connection or help reconcile that is to understand that, you know, African-American studies in many ways is the study of the people and the experiences on the underside of modernity, right? You know, so it's thinking about, we have this enlightenment narrative of who we are as a society, what we do in academia, and the, the parallel reality is how all of those ideals uh, for freedom and liberty in this country have been designed in conjunction with the bondage of a group of people. <laughs> and so thinking about those things in the context of science and technology means that you, you look at scientific and technological developments with an eye to who is potentially harmed and excluded by these developments, by this progress, to look at it from its underbelly reveals a whole different set of insights that I think um, should be part and parcel of the training of all STEM students. And so thinking about it not as a niche approach, but as something that is a perspective and a lens to understand what science and technology even is from, a, you know, from a, a sociological point of view. So that said, I started this really as an undergrad when I had to do an honors thesis and research, and I ended up researching and comparing the approach of black midwives to childbirth and comparing it to obstetricians and the conventional approach to childbirth in our healthcare system. And so I did this kind of side-by-side -side comparison and ethnographic approach that helped me look at what the dominant mode of medicine and reproductive medicine was and compared it to this alternative approach and looking at what sort of how they compared both in terms of what differed, but also the, some of the ways in which they shared certain kinds of logics and approaches. And so that was my, my first few steps into thinking critically about medicine. And so when I got to grad school, I, th I thought I would still continue that. But at the time in California, I went to UC Berkeley. And at the time, the state of California was passing this stem cell initiative. It was investing $3 billion into stem cell research because at the federal level, Bush Jr. was prohibiting funding for embryonic stem cell research. So California said, well, if we can't get it from the feds, we will get it, give it ourselves. And so there was a ballot measure. People in the state, when they went to vote, voted whether they wanted this right to research to be codified in the California Constitution. And with that uh, measure came a whole new state agency dedicated to stem cell research that would then allocate grants, this $3 billion of grants to researchers. And so I was a grad student my first few years when this happened. And my advisor at the time ended up being one of the bioethics advisors, uh, Professor Karis Thompson, to this initiative. And since she had such an inside perspective, she encouraged me to think about this as a possible topic. And so I ended up applying to be one of the grad students in, a, in their first cohort of training fellows, stem cell fellows, that studied both the science and the ethics of the field. And so as a fellow, I turned it into my dissertation and interviewed people that were associated with the agency that were instrumental in getting it passed, but also interviewing people who were opposed to it for various reasons, from a disability justice perspective, from a racial justice and feminist perspective. And so 
my first book is called People's Science, Bodies and Rights on the Stem Cell Frontier. And in many ways, it is looking at the contours, the, the ways that different groups were included and excluded in this state-level scientific initiative. So the same kind of questions I started with as an undergrad in terms of power and equality in the context of reproductive medicine, I transferred to stem cell and biotechnology more broadly. And now my most recent work applies those same big questions about power and inequality to the context of the data sciences and what some people call algorithmic discrimination or machine bias. And so the, the, the core questions remain the same, but the particular scientific field changes. That's, that's just a really interesting journey to get there. And one of the things I know I've been, I've talked about on this podcast, Michael's heard me talk about it too much, and my students definitely have, is that I'm really interested in, in you know, K-12 students and in teacher education. For us to help students think about technologies, there's so much focus at, you know, conferences like ST and others of teaching with technologies, but not thinking about them and their impact on our lives. And so I really appreciate your work because I think you really center that. And if I can give a plug, this is an easy book to give a plug for because, you know, I get to choose whatever books I want. I'm very fortunate in higher ed to do that. And the first book that I used in my course was your Race After Technology book, which is your new book. And I won't make you quote from it. So I've, I've pulled up, I think, the thing that I like about this book, it, well, there's many things, but it's that you make a very powerful argument to me that's very clear but also nuanced. And so early in the book, you talk about the new Jim Code, which plays off Michelle Alexander's New Jim Crow um, which talks about school-to-prison pipelines and related issues. And you define it as the employment of new technologies that reflect and reproduce existing inequities, but that are promoted and perceived as more objective or progressive than the discriminatory systems of a previous era. And that, it's, it's very, to me, that theme runs through the book, and I always come back to that. Can you tell us about this, the, this book for people that haven't read it? And obviously we're saying need to. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for, you know, sharing the book with your, your students and for just your own sort of application of the themes to the context of education, because that's really my hope is that people take, use it, the kind of conceptual toolkit that I build in the book and apply it to a, a variety of contexts. And education is one of the most important. So this concept of the new Jim Code is riffing off of this, um, this idea that Michelle Alexander writes about um, the new Jim Crow, which is thinking about how, you know, things change, but they don't fully change, right? So it's thinking about time and progress and racial progress and how we have these different institutions that continue to perpetuate racial domination and injustice in a different form. And we, and so she gives us the lens to understand how that changes. And so by sort of riffing off of that, I want us to understand that change and the role of technology in that change and specifically how we're trained to think of technology as inherently progressive, right? Built into our very imagination and definition of technology as a notion of progress and futurism. And so it's, it's even harder, I think, to become critical of the way that something that on the surface looks new. I mean, it, you know, you have the iPhone 1, 2, 3, 4, like every year, it seems to be something that's new, but how within it, you know, understanding how it's actually built, you can build in old logics, old values into something that on the surface looks new. And so we need a language to be able to name that 
And so the new gym code is one of an, an, what I call cousin concepts. A number of my colleagues have developed a part of this grammar, um, whether it's, you know, algorithms of oppression or automating inequality or the coded gaze or, you know, um, artificial unintelligence. Uh, so many great books, uh, many of which have been written by black women. And so it's interesting to think again in terms of, you know, what is it about the, the, the experience of being doubly marginalized, but not simply excluded, being necessary to a society, but being subordinate, right? So that, that part of that duplicity is that you're both, you're used, but you're not valued. And I think to understand that experience, then you can begin to think, okay, why is it that so much of the recent work that's been critical of technology is coming out of a lived experience of people who live the underside of being used, but not valued? And you begin to see a whole new way of understanding technology that perpetuates, can perpetuate inequity. Quick example from the context of education. A few years ago, the city of St. Paul, Minnesota, the public schools there and the police joined forces and passed this controversial joint powers agreement. And they called it the Innovation Project. And what the innovation project was meant to do was to use an algorithm that would identify so-called at-risk youth in the city. And so what they were going to do once they identified is unclear. But the fact that they were going to use something that people would assume was neutral, it wasn't a racist cop or a racist teacher or a racist public school administrator that's targeting you. It's an algorithm that's saying you're at risk and we got to do something about that. And what's interesting is, that 20 community organizations joined forces and pushed back on this initiative. They held meetings, focus groups, collective conscious, they, they organized, and they ultimately, within the span of a year or so, had this particular innovation project stopped in favor of a more community-led approach that was not about labeling youth at risk, but was about building relationships, about giving resources where they're needed, about creating a climate and a context in which young people can thrive rather than labeling them with this pathological label. And what they called their movement was the Stop the Cradle to Prison Algorithm Coalition because they understood the role of algorithms in perpetuating that pipeline, right? And so again, it's one of those things where on the surface might look more neutral and objective because it's a risk score or it's a label being spit out by a software program, but someone had to design that program. Someone had to input what the, val what the features would be that would help you determine if a youth was at risk. Now those people are hidden because it's coming through the, the software program, but it's the same old fashioned and often discriminatory forms of evaluation that then get perpetuated through seemingly objective computation. So this is, uh, and I apologize, this might be a silly question, in algorithm, I, I hear the word tossed out a lot. I know it has to do with inputting numbers and then stuff comes out. What am I missing? What is an algorithm and how can they be, like, how can they do this? One of the best explanations of an algorithm that I've heard um, is from the introduction of Kathy O'Neill's book, Weapons of Math Destruction. And there's a number of great analogies. You can think of an algorithm like a recipe. It's a, a formula that helps you make a decision right? And she says, she's a mathematician herself, she says, it's an opinion that's made to seem objective, 
<laughs> right? And so partly an algorithm, one way to think of algorithm is just a set of rules that help people make a decision about something. And when thought about in its most generic sense, there are all kinds of algorithms that we use on a daily basis that aren't these complex machine learning algorithms that are a set of assumptions and rules, even for making dinner, how much of this you know, dish to make versus other, thinking about calculating how many people are here, who's going to be away. So we use folk algorithms all the time in our heads to make decisions by inputting certain things. And so, and like, I like her way of approaching it because it demystifies it. It takes it out of the, the context of, you know, sci-fi and Silicon Valley and these very fancy high-tech machine learning sort of contexts and thinks about how we all have certain kinds of rules and guides that help us make decisions and predict certain things. How much of this to do? How soon should I get to X, Y, and Z to make sure I get there on time? And so these predict the predictive capacity of algorithms is, I think, what makes them so powerful and problematic. So the prediction of whether a youth is at risk or a prediction of whether a patient needs more resources. Because when we think of it as neutral, then we stop questioning what are the assumptions that went into the prediction. And another aspect of it I think that will be helpful for people to know is that we have to teach algorithms how to make decisions. So they don't grow on trees. And the main mechanism for training an algorithm is data that you already have that's used to train the algorithm how to make accurate decisions. So by definition, algorithms have to use history to predict the future. Because if you're using data to train an algorithm, that data has to already exist. And so if you're using patterns of suspension in a school, which students are more likely to be suspended in a certain school district? And you use that data to train an algorithm how to predict which kids are likely to cause trouble in the future, then that means that the behaviors of teachers in the past are shaping the predictions that are teaching the algorithms how to look forward. And so thinking about the historic nature of training data and also the way that racism, sexism, and other forms of inequity have shaped that data or those human behaviors that are then codified in a particular predictive system is really important for us to think about. I think a, another thing your book does that's really powerful is you kind of address the the blurriness of what is technology and what is society. And, you know, you start off talking about how names are racially coded. And I thought that was really powerful. And I, it made me think a lot about how in schools, the ways even things like grades can come out as these like objective measures of, of knowledge or, or intelligence, other things. But we also use these technologies. I don't know if you know Class Dojo. It's a, it's a technology in school, but I've really been thinking lately, why is, has no one done it? And I hope people read your book and do a study with this lens of like, you know, because out one end comes these behaviorist like markers. And I know my students were telling me recently in our local school district that like kids will literally get in the red, right? Like it's like gamified, they'll get in the red and then they're sent to Lonely Island, which is literally a place. And I thought about how um, we know about discriminatory, what? I know, I know. Do they, they use they use Class Dojo in your area, Michael? No, that's crazy. It's and so it's but it's made to be this fun thing and it's even become a social media app. So what you basically they encourage parents to use Class Dojo at home too, so that the kids are constantly monitored and, and their behaviors turned into data. And it's terrifying to me because then we know the history of discriminatory exclusionary 
discipline in schools. And so, but I haven't even seen anyone who's studied because it's harder to argue with the data that comes out because we believe so much in numbers on the end, even if it's like a white normative frame of a teacher that's punishing a black child, you know, and I, it just really bothers me. I think we need to do that research in education. I really hope people begin to look at that critically. I think I became aware of it when someone on Twitter posted a screenshot of like their niece or nephew's points for the day and how they lost points for going to the bathroom or something like that. And so one of the things I feel like we should really, as part of studying it, is to understand that these technologies don't simply, aren't simply a mirror or reflect what's happening. They nudge behavior. They shape behavior. And so, as you said, gamifying it. So it's part of this, the psychology around it is that it's, yes, it's collecting our data and selling it and using it in all kinds of ways. And we should, should be riled up about that. But we also have to think about the way that we internalize the logics of these technologies. And then, as you say, even if the parents aren't using it, if the kid is using it all day in school, that will start to affect, you know, what they do at home, even if the parent chooses not to to use it. And so thinking about how we have a relationship with these technologies, that they're not simply monitoring us, but they're shaping us, is one of the insights drawn from a book by Shoshana Zuboff, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, in which she really does a deep dive into the behavioral psychology that's shaped the design of most of the systems that uh, we use on a day-to-day -day basis. I like that you said deep dive as a way to say 800 pages long book. <laughs> I, uh, one of the students in our class who's still uh, here with us, Troy, me and him have tried to read part of it. And it is a very good book. It is just, it's a, uh, you have to give yourself time to read it. So yeah. she, she puts time into it before. Yeah. So. so what advice would you give to teachers or educators when thinking about the relationship with, with technology? I think that the, one of the main shifts that I'm trying to encourage is for us to think not only about access to technologies, right, and equitable access to technologies. So the idea of a digital divide, and we're seeing that really come to life right now in terms of the COVID-19 crisis when schools are online and not everyone has access to the devices or the internet to be able to engage their, their teachers. And so the, the access issue is still huge. And so I don't want to in any way minimize that, but to understand that the design of technology can amplify and deepen inequities. So what goes into the technologies? We're, we're primed to look at the impact of technologies. Just the idea, for example, of screen, too much screen time, right, as having a negative impact. But the design of the technologies, who's actually doing it with what values and priorities and whether educators are part of that process or whether it's people whose main thing is to figure out, you know, sort of a quick and easy fix for some kind of educational problem rather than putting the relationships between teachers and students at the foreground of the design of these technologies and to understand that sometimes technology is not the answer. Sometimes better relationships a more a richer, diverse context, other forms of, you know, changing the curriculum is where we should invest our energy. So not to look at technology as the answer to, to, to every problem. So Dan, I know that you, uh, you invited your entire class to join us today, which is great. <laughs> and they actually are going to take over the next part of our podcast. 
Okay, here we go. So Dr. Benjamin, so our students in our uh, Critical Perspectives on Learning Technology class have some questions for you after reading your book and devouring all your work and learning so much from you. We still have questions. I know you thought you got them all answered, right? You took care of it all. And so I'm going to turn it over to some of my students and we've got some questions in order that we can go through. Awesome. I look forward to them. I guess I'll start. Hi, my name is Ahmed Hadi. And I really enjoyed reading your book, you know, we've learned a lot from it. And uh, me and Zach are actually working on a paper that also touches a lot on your book. So the question that I kind of have is somewhat related to our pandemic right now. So do you think the rise of a crisis like the coronavirus pandemic could lead to more discriminatory design? Yeah, I think it does create a context in which because it's a crisis moment, people are, one, preoccupied with more life and death concerns. And so in terms of just where we have the luxury of placing our attention, that creates a context in which things that may seem more distant in terms of a threat are not prioritized. So that's one aspect of it. The other is that I think we tend to question discriminatory designs less when they come wrapped in the veneer of safety and health and fairness. So the more that the various technologies of surveillance come to us wrapped in public health, um, come to wrapped in, in ways that seem like they're urgent and necessary. I think part of that framing makes it so that we uh, question it less and a lot of things will get through the door because they come wrapped in that. And so I think we need, we need to maintain a certain kind of vigilance around not taking everything at face value just because a company or an institution or even a government says this is in our best interests, we need to develop the skills to evaluate things on their own terms and look beneath the framing, look beneath the packaging to see how it's actually impacting different communities. I think to that point, I've seen recently the, um, the efforts by some governments to use like GPS as a way to track where people are going, potentially who have tested for it. And I guess the fear I've seen some people raise are, once you unroll that, do we ever get that back, right? <laughs> do we, are we able to yeah. roll it back? Yeah, and I've seen some, some places address that concern. I was listening to a talk about Taiwan's remarkable approach to containment and part of that being kind of digital surveillance and the fact that over a period of years, they've passed laws that give the government certain kinds of ability to do that but then those laws that ability expires so it's not indefinite so that they have a year to do x y and z in the public good where individual liberties may take a back seat but then that does that is not something that is allowed to maintain indefinitely so that's one way that i've seen places deal with it another had a little a post that just came across my desk a couple hours ago says that the first person in Britain to be arrested and convicted under the Coronavirus Act is a black woman, arrested and fined for, quote, failing to provide identity or reasons for travel to police and failing to comply with requirements. 
And so here we have an example going back even to the first question of how a, a coronavirus act that is in the public good, the way that it's actually implemented is likely to have these very predictable <laughs> discriminatory effects on different communities, even though they may not have it intended to be that way, right? And so we have to be very watchful and vigilant about how these various kinds of um, public health safety acts and laws and measures end up following the same well-worn pathways that we've seen in prior, in prior moments and eras. Yeah, in our own metro here in DFW, a black woman was arrested for voting after she had been in, in prison. And it was like a significant sentence, which to me was meant to send a really chilling effect. And yeah, you notice these patterns about who is it that's often punished for um, things that are in the name of safety. In this case, it was for protecting voting, but it seemed Absolutely. more of a punishment. I, I feel like I heard about that case, especially when we had the college cheating scandal. There were a lot of side by sides, I think of that case and a few others of a homeless mother in Connecticut, for example, enrolling her kid in a, a school district that wasn't her own and getting however many years of a sentence versus the various kinds of uh, ways that the college cheating scandal families were penalized. So side by side comparison. All right. Hi, Dr. Benjamin. I'm Ryan Smits. I'm a high school English teacher here in North Texas. So my question is about kind of on your ideas of vocal and power and surveillance. So it's as people become more reliant on technology and less knowledgeable about how it works, how do you think this will change our relationship with tech companies? And then is there anything an ordinary person can do to help restore that balance of power? Yeah, you know, one of the, the things that I've, a major shift that I've seen take place in the last three years, from the time that I started the book to now when I'm talking about it, the public conversation and the public consciousness around big tech and the role of technology in our lives, I, I sense that it has shifted dramatically. And I've seen a few polls to corroborate that, a few surveys that came out, I think Pew and others, to look, for example, at people's general trust of big tech and how that has gone down, the, the percentage of people who who kind of unquestioningly kind of believe that what they're deciding and what they're rolling out is in the best interest of everyone has fallen dramatically. And so I think whether we call that skepticism or mistrust or a kind of incisive understanding that people who are designing things with the profit, you know, the profit of their, their products as their first value, trumping other values, whether we should rightly question that is something I think that's been broadly been becoming more no normalized. And so whether people understand exactly the ins and outs of a particular technology is a good question. Um, but I think people are becoming more willing to understand that technology is not neutral, that there are values, assumptions, desires, ideologies that are embedded in even the simplest object and simplest technology. And so whether we know the ins and outs, that, that can come. We can, people can learn that. But I think as a first step, just recognizing that there are people making decisions behind the screen that are not necessarily uh, prioritizing the, the, the public good or our, our, our concerns about fairness and equity. So I'm happy to see that shift. Now the question is, 
what do we do with that? Now that more people are, are kind of questioning and critical, one of the organizations that I collaborate with says that we need to move from paranoia to power, right? And so partly when you don't understand things, that's a really, um, that's, a, that's a fertile ground for paranoia, for conspiracies. You know, we see that now with the virus, you know, all kinds of folk theories about why things are the way that they are when we don't have a thorough knowledge of it. And so for me, it's important for us to take this critical sort of consciousness that's been growing over the last few years. And one of the things we know that sort of sparked that was the Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal. So when we see that it directly impacts our democracy and our political field, but there were a number of other things sort of leading up to that and after that too, that I think is creating this new context. Now we have to channel that energy. And the good news is that there are so many local, regional, and national organizations that I write about, that I collaborate with, that any of us can join forces with. We don't have to kind of reinvent the wheel, which goes to your second part of your question about individual, you know, sort of action. I think the, the most powerful thing we can do as individuals is to organize and collectivize our, our angst rather than simply trying to become better consumers of technology which is kind of like, you know, in the wake of the climate crisis, trying to recycle better, <laughs> you know, as individuals. Uh, when we really, if we just address the big actors in the, in the climate crisis, we could have a much more far-reaching effect. So the question is, how do we organize and collectivize vis-a-vis -vis the tech sort of inequities that we see? And, and there's so many ways we can do it. And it doesn't require necessarily for you for any of us to have a to be data scientists to organize or to have a like understand the ins and outs of every single gadget and screen and technology that we engage you know what we need is a sense of solidarity what we need is more that is a sense of social and historical literacy that what we're experiencing today is not it's not all new, right? It might look shiny and new because it's coming in a slightly different package, but we can build on this sense of um, historical precedent and the social dimensions of, of what we're seeing to work with others, whether it's under the banner of Data for Black Lives, which is a national organization, or the Detroit Community Tech Initiative, which is a local organization. And almost in every corner of the country, there are groups that are, are thinking and working critically on, on issues of tech equity and justice. So that's what I would encourage people to do is to join forces with other like-minded people who want to work on these issues. I love that advice. Plug into what already exists as opposed to trying to, to start from scratch. I think, uh, I think a lot of people, that's where they feel a sense of powerlessness is they, they feel overwhelmed by a problem. Um, but there's, you're right, there's such good organizations doing work. Yeah. Hi, Dr. Benjamin. My name is Kevin, and I am a district administrator in a suburban school district here in Dallas. And, and your book has only been out for a short period of time, but already we're starting to see you cited in research, just an article that we read for class this week, cited your book pretty extensively. And I was wondering if you have come across any instances either in academia or even in the social media sphere where your work has been misinterpreted. Mm, that's a good one. No one's ever asked me that, actually. And, 
and perhaps because it's still relatively new, it's hard for me to think if I've felt like I've been miss miscited so far. And I think part of maybe why I haven't, or I'm not aware of it. It could be, <laughs> but I'm not aware of it is because even before the book came out, I haven't just put the book out there and just kind of let it be interpreted. I've been talking to a lot of different groups and, and organizations from public libraries to community organizations to tech companies. And I've been on a lot of podcasts and done a lot of interviews. And so I feel like part of the, the way that I approach being a scholar is also to, to, public, to engage publicly around my work. And so I, I, in that way, I feel like I'm giving people less room to misinterpret it because I'm speaking for myself, <laughs> you know? And so it, it very well could happen. And because oftentimes there's like willful ignorance among people, you can do all you want to do. And then people are just like, no, I, I'm going to misinterpret this or, or miscite this. And so that I can't control, but I feel like I've really actively sort of used the book less as a kind of this is the final word on this and more as a conversation starter to talk to to engage with all kinds of people and communities and classes around the world and and i feel like part of using the book as part of a conversation also means that i'm open to revising my ideas about it right and so it's, it's not the final word so in conversation with people it's kind of thinking oh i hadn't thought of that or it could be applied to this context or you know i, I wish i would have included this <laughs> but i couldn't you know and so the book in that way is dynamic and my my just approach to scholarship is not like i have the last word on it can i ask one follow-up question about your public scholarship i think for and you're at a very prestigious institution you know princeton university and i i was curious though how they pursued that because i think a lot of academia has not caught up with the role of, yeah. of of you know scholars being public scholars absolutely i think you're right and one of the things that drew me to princeton's african-american studies department is because the, my most senior colleagues exemplify that kind of public engagement. And so it was important to me. I started my, fir my first tenure track job was at Boston University. And when I went back on the job market, I was looking for a corner of academia where I wouldn't have to smuggle in my public commitments on the weekends or in the end of the day or, you know, kind of seeing it as separate from my scholarship and my teaching, that it was seen as part and parcel of that. For me, my public engagement is just one more classroom. You know, it's just a classroom in a different form. And so I wanted a place in academia where that was modeled around me and it was encouraged. It was, it was seen as, you know, yeah, that's what we all do. And I found that in my department. So I'm not sure if that would be the case if I was located in another corner of Princeton or another university. I think I would have the kind of more of the swimming upstream, you know, experience that many people do or just feel like their public work is not valued, which I think happens a lot. But certainly in, in my department, my most senior colleagues, we have a kind of public mission to our department. We do our work in the university, but we also have this kind of collective commitment to making sure that our work is responsive and is engaged with 
all kinds of different communities depending on our, our area of scholarship. So I feel very fortunate that that is the kind of intellectual community I'm located in. That's great. I think all educators at all levels can really think about how our work you know, extends beyond the, the kind of constraints and boundaries that they're normally set up. So that's really cool that you're able to do that. Yeah. Hello, my name is Karen and I'm a science educator here in Dallas. And uh, my question is kind of looking towards the future with your book. Do you see any movement in the technology companies or broader groups uh, attempting to create less discriminatory practices? Or do you see current technologies are still relying on the discriminative practices that you discuss in detailing your book? Yeah, I think, you know, the short answer is that I've seen a, a quite a bit of change in the last few years in terms of companies taking seriously the concerns I raise and a number of my other colleagues whose books address related issues. So just in the last few years, um, a number of books have come out, Weapons of Math Destruction, which you may already know about, if not by Kathy O'Neill. I think hers was one of the first in 2016 or 2015. Um, Algorithms of Dep Oppression by Sophia Noble. Artificial Unintelligence by Meredith Broussard. Automating Inequality by Virginia Eubanks and others. And I feel like in the wake of all of this work, including some done by graduate students, you know, one of the most impactful pieces of scholarship has come out of MIT by Joy Bulamwini on facial recognition systems and the discriminatory implications of um, these systems that are unable to detect people with darker skin and routinely misgender black women. So the, the companies initially, is, like, let's take Joy's work, initially tried to sort of deny the, empir the empirical evidence in front of them and were very defensive. And then ultimately in the wake of this, the evidence, they had to accept, you know, what, what was actually happening and have subsequently been um, trying to address it in, in their own ways. And so some of the ways that they've tried to address it, I think are substantive and are to be commended. And in other ways, they take a kind of superficial interpretation of what the problem is, not really understanding how deep, <laughs> how deep it goes. I'll give you a quick example. In the fall of last year, Google's new Pixel 4 phone was coming out. And um, again, like I said, the idea, the, the, the work around facial recognition showed that all of the major facial recognition systems were having these issues around race and gender. So the phone was coming out, and so they wanted to try to preempt that problem with the, with the facial detection on the phone. They didn't want it to, you know, have this issue of not working on people with darker skin or or not identifying black women when they tried to open the phone with their face, et cetera. And so they hired contract workers to diversify the training data for the system. Now, what does that mean? That means that they hired people to approach black people on the street to take selfies so that the selfies would make the, the training data more diverse, but not any black people. They directed the contract workers to target black homeless people and exchange $5 gift cards and, ex and told them to play with the phones. And this, they would take the selfies, but the individuals were not told what it was for. So automatically, you're creating a very coercive exchange, right? You're targeting a population that you know you can 
higher on the cheap in some ways, right? $5 gift cards for Google is pennies or cents, you know? And then not telling them, informing them what this was for. That's another layer to the, 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 the coercion. And then the third layer we can think about is not just that people were not informed, but these very systems that are going to make Google's products better at detecting darker skin are very likely going to make facial recognition systems better at policing homeless populations around the country, right? And so if we think about surveillance technologies, yes, they make your product more inclusive, but they also create an environment where people are more experiencing this carceral form of technology and at a more accurate, in a more accurate way. And so for me, when I thought about when these headlines came out, one, the contract workers, they were the ones who kind of blew the whistle. We find out about it because the people who were hired to do this were like, something's wrong with this. <laughs> and they went to the media and they, and they said that they were told to, to not to target these particular populations because the homeless population was less likely to go to the media about this. So already you're, you're capitalizing on their vulnerability, right? And so I was thinking about the room at Google in which people were sitting around and making this decision. You know, what was the conversation like, right? Where someone thought, you know, we, we see this research coming out of MIT. We know these facial recognition systems are not very inclusive. And then you end up working towards an inclusive outcome, but predicating it on a coercive process, right? So those two things went hand in hand. And so either no one in that room had a keen sense of the history of scientific racism, of the use specifically of black populations in this country to hone science and technologies since its founding, from the, the work of J. Marion Sims, you know, who's considered the father of gynecology, who experimented on enslaved black women during slavery, to the Tuskegee U.S. Public Health service experiments at Tuskegee, to prison experiments, and on and on and on. The work of Harriet Washington in the book Medical Apartheid lays this out, right? 400 years of experimenting and using black bodies and black people to, to create better science and technology. So either no one in that room at Google was aware, or the other possibility is that they were, and they either, they didn't feel empowered to bring it up, right? The culture and the, the organization didn't exist where they felt like they would be taken seriously or they brought it up and it was seen as irrelevant. <laughs> we got to get this training data, right? And so there's so many options there. But to me, that's one way of understanding that companies are taking it seriously within the logic of capitalism, right? Let's make products more inclusive to make sure that we get the consumers, that we don't get the bad publicity, but they're not fully questioning the ethics and the politics of the research upon which these products are based. And so, again, in the last few years, many companies have, have created internal ethics committees that focused on these issues and that supposedly help different, you know, teams think about the issues of equity with respect to their products. Many of them hire in-house philosophers and social scientists to help guide the work. But again, how much, how seriously they're taken, what kind of role they have, all of these are to be questioned. And so there has been change, but uh, some of that we have to consider 
how much of that is kind of, you know, reputation management because they have to seem like they're taking it seriously, how much it's really substantively changing what's happening both within these organizations and in terms of what they produce that the rest of us consume. And so there's a lot going on in response. But that, and one way I think about the response is that the critique is being domesticated. The critique that we're all sort of researching and writing about, it's being domesticated. It's being internalized in terms of these companies and these institutions. But what's happening once it's domesticated is hard to, to evaluate, partly because, you know, they're private companies and, I, and they don't have a great track record <laughs> in terms of fostering the trust, the public trust. And so I think we still have to be very vigilant when it comes to thinking about the promise change that they're, they're touting. Thank you for that answer. So you just mentioned a lot with Google, but um, what is the most blatant example of discriminatory design you've seen in the past six months? That's a good one. The one that I find most compelling because we can actually see the, we can, we can see clearly the decisions that created the discriminatory effect, right? So, so much of what I write about and we talk about is that we see the effect, but we don't quite know the mechanism in detail about what created the effect. And this particular example is, is one, again, that happens in the context of healthcare. And healthcare, let's say, compared to like criminal justice or another arena where we expect things to be go bad, like we expect things to be discriminatory because that system is so unjust. We kind of, we have, may have a tendency to put our guard down in the context of healthcare. So in this case, there was a widely used healthcare algorithm used by many, many healthcare systems around the country, affecting millions and millions of people. And this particular system uh, algorithm that was put in place was meant to identify patients who needed more attention on the part of healthcare providers. They were so, so that by catching them early, you could prevent them from getting as sick as they likely would, right? So it's meant to be a kind of triaging system to catch people early. And what happened was um, the researchers who were able to get access to the algorithm because the companies allowed them to, which is un very unusual, and study it, they found that the, for, so the outcome was that the system was not flagging as many black patients as needing additional help. And hundreds of thousands of black patients were not getting the, the, the ad additional resources and attention. So why was that? It was because the algorithm was designed in such a way that it was using healthcare cost as, as a proxy for healthcare need. And so it was assuming that in this country, people, who, whoever we spend more on, they must need that added attention and added healthcare. And it assumes that there's not all kinds of people falling through the cracks who need healthcare, but who we're not spending any money on, who are not getting the attention. So it used cost as a proxy for need and as such, it was over-identifying white patients and under-identifying black patients as needing care. And so I like this example that was, the research was done by Obermeyer and colleagues, came out last fall, and I wrote a response to the research. The original study and my response came out in the journal Science. And I also have a, a link to the article on the research tab of my website for those who are interested. But that's been one of the most compelling um, and we will definitely get that article in our show notes so people can find it easily. And of course, to your website too. So 
All right, Zach, do you want to ask a question? And um, Zach is a very helpful guest here too because he helps us edit the podcast. So <laughs> he's the one that makes sure. I always tell him the goal is to make us all sound smart. Um, you're, you need no help with that, but he has to fix a lot of the stuff. We all, we all need help. We all need help. <laughs> so Dr. Benjamin, I was curious, how has your research changed the ways that you interact with technologies both that you personally use and the technologies that you might come across that exist in the public sphere that you're talking about, like facial recognition. Yeah, that's a good one. And it kind of relates to the question about what we can do as individuals. I have to admit that since starting the book, my relationship to technology or the way that I engage hasn't changed dramatically, in part because I I tend not to invest as much in sort of trying to become a vigilant consumer uh, because I... It's again kind of that recycling example. I think about okay, but this is still affecting millions of people, even though I might be, you know, not getting detected. I do like compared to my my husband who has he's a cyclist, so he has all the tracking devices. He like plugs himself up. He's like a cyborg at night, and he just loves all the things, checking every temperature, how much he sleeps. And so I'm always trying to tell him, you know, who else can get access to that data? An insurance company who can deny you health you know, insurance based on it. So I tend to be more vigilant than him. And he also likes all of the kind of detection home smart stuff. And I'm like, no, 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 because this data is going. So I, you know, when it comes to the obvious kinds of personal surveillance, you know, whether it's biometric stuff or like all of the neighborhood surveillance technologies, the ring devices and so on, I tend to eschew those and try to discourage people from, especially the, the, na- the neighborhood things, because even if you are not discriminating against the person coming to your door, these companies have access to that data. And we've already had examples when they were able to detect someone who ended up not committing a crime and using it to profile people. So I tend to be wary of that. But I tell a story in the book about my colleague who studies similar issues. And she did an experiment, actually a series of experiments. You guys might remember reading about her, Janet Vertesi. When she was pregnant, she tried to keep all mention of her pregnancy offline and including anything that they, her and her partner bought in stores. They, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't use credit cards because they didn't want that data going and so on. So she tried to not have any detection because she didn't want that data to be then used to market things to her and profile her for, you know, so even family members weren't allowed to congratulate her on Facebook and they would get blocked. (laughs) And so what happened though, and the, the, the point of that story is that her partner goes to buy like diapers or other baby related items so he buys a bunch of gift cards and then he gets flagged as a likely criminal because he's trying to buy all these gift cards and so for me that's an example of how as individuals when we just try to change our habits there's an implicit guilt associated with that right the assumption is that we should all want to be in these databases and if we don't if we try to exercise a kind of informed refusal something's wrong with us and so for that reason, I think we have to cast our, our, our priorities to changing the, that set of assumptions and the processes that affect the vast majority of people, rather than just trying to change our own consumer habits. 
Well, thank you. It sounds like you and your husband have had similar conversations me and my wife have had about technologies and, and all of this. And I'm assuming a lot of people have, but hey, if you have them in your house, at least you can then like kind of study them, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And then uh, the last thing I'll say is that's part of the duplicity of these technologies is that they offer all kinds of conveniences, all kinds of ease in our life. And the underside of that is that if you have access to it and all this data, someone else has access to you. So we have to understand that two-way street when it comes to being users. I think that is wise advice. And we really appreciate you spending this time with us tonight. I personally was just super excited. Whenever I finish someone's book that I love, um, it's like talking to a rock star right after. Uh, and so, um, awesome. We've, we appreciate everything you've done and you know your book really helped recenter what the things questions we asked in our class so so thank you for for sharing your work with us it's really my honor and pleasure thank you all for reading for asking such fantastic questions i really appreciate it so where can our listeners find you or your work online you can go to ruhabbenjamin.com and you can get access to all of my research, all of my teaching, and a bunch of other things you probably don't even want to know that will be there on ruhabbenjamin.com. And definitely buy the book because you were so generous in giving your book away. One of our students in the class, Kevin Moore, wanted to give you a shout out for giving your book to historically black universities, to a lot of students. So, so that means we need to buy more copies of the book. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, Thank there's a link there on the book page uh, where you can find how, how to purchase it. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. So thank you again so much for joining us today, Dr. Benjamin. We certainly hope to continue the discussion online on Twitter. You're at Ruha9 and in other places. Nice. Now remember, at the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning if you're doing something fun or creative in education or you're bored and you just want to chat, tweet us at Visions of Ed. Or we also have our own Twitter stuff too. And you can also hit us up on the Facebook. And of course, and please tell your family and friends, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and really anywhere you'd like us to be. We will no longer come to you though. And if you write us a five-star review, Apple's algorithms will hopefully, in a non-biased way, get you to our podcast. And we need to look and analyze those algorithms and make sure that there's not bias in them, Michael. Or could it be nicely biased towards us? Yeah. I know that's probably just as bad. That's probably just as bad. <laughs> yeah. Thank you to Zach Seitz for both asking questions in this episode and editing it. He is at the University of North Texas and Wiley High Schools. And... These Twitter addresses are more important than normal because our, I got our account locked down, as I mentioned in the intro. So you can find me on Twitter, where I'll be sharing episodes, at Dan Kratka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.